Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 153. Do you think that you could work yourself out of the business and absolutely scale it like crazy? Well, most owners' answers would be absolutely BS. It's not possible. Well, today's guest name is Scott Fritz, and he's here to prove you wrong that it's totally possible, but he's also able to share with you how he did it. So Scott Fritz, he actually successfully started a PEO business back in the 90s, like 99, and grew the company up to $50 million where he decided with his partner that it was time to get the hell out because he wanted to have what he is now called in his book that he wrote, the 40-hour work year. Because he and his partner said, we need to get the heck out of this business. And as we describe in the podcast, he kind of went from two-dimensional to three-dimensional and all the different goals that he had were different because the goal was to get himself out of the business. So he describes how he and his partner did that and the, the decision process to get to that point. What are the first things that they did and how they took their comp differently, how they then tried to hire the next person who can take on the reins and their strategies, what it was like to try and find more margins with with different customers and then through that transition period what are the different tools that he used from decision making matrices to decision filters to forecasting KPIs and we just had this whole dialogue about how looking at your business as if your sole goal is to get the hell out then you will make completely different decisions that are harder and more valuable because your company will increase in value because you've created a cash machine. Scott successfully grew from zero to $170 million before he sold to a third-party buyer. And the whole point was that he built systems. He built a cash machine. And so whether you're going to sell or not, it's irrelevant. He was living the 40-hour work year because he built a company that was sellable. It sounds like it's really, really a good idea, right? And I think this is the big takeaway is everybody says, well, I'm never going to exit or I don't want to sell. It's irrelevant. If you're gonna build a business, build systems so that way you can do whatever you want and you can make a bunch of money and then whenever you decide to sell, it's yours to do whatever you want with. I think it just really helped hearing it from him that this is possible. And so if you wanna eliminate the the word exit, replace it with transition. And actually the, the three words that Scott uses is transition, your business, and your role position your company for sale, and then acquisition, either acquire or go get acquired. So transition, position, acquisition. This is an absolute must listen to, whether you are burnt out or you wanna sell your business or you want a different life or you wanna make more money, this is the first place to start. And his book is amazing. So without further ado, here's Scott Fritz. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Scott, how you doing? Doing great, Ryan. Yourself? Doing good. Uh, Super excited to have you on the show. Uh, You have a book that I think is a title that most people believe is BS, which is actually one of my clients that said that as I was on my way here. But I think uh, you've proven it and I'm excited to get into it. But um, so you you and I were chatting a little bit before the show, but for the clients that or the the clients or the the listeners that are not familiar with you or or the 40 hour work year, um, 
let's start with your background, Scott. Like, what is, uh, you know, what are, how did you get to this point where you, you ended up having the, the, the thought to write this book? Yeah, so uh, I, I'd written, I'd uh, sold the company and I'd been doing talks to different entrepreneurial groups and uh, actually called my presentation. It was a PowerPoint, you know, classy, you know, high tech presentation. I call it transition position acquisition. So the concept is to, you know, transition yourself out of the business, uh, position it for sale or to buy other companies and then begin buying other companies, acquisition, acquiring or get acquired. So I'm doing this talk. I'm going around the circuit, probably doing three or four of these a year. And almost every time I do one of these, somebody would call to me and say, when you're writing the book, when you're writing the book. <laughs> and I had never looked at writing a book. I never thought about it. I knew it sounded painful. I knew a couple other business owners who'd done it and said it was not enjoyable. But I said, you know what? <laughs> Worst case scenario, it's a bucket list thing. I can say I wrote a book. So I spent about a year off and on, you know, screwing around with it. Came to the December of 2009. I had literally probably 20% left to go of the manuscript. I told my wife, we're not going anywhere this Christmas. I'm going to lock myself in the office from nine to five every day. And I'm going to finish this book. So I got it done. I self-published it through Lulu and May of 2010, the book. That's awesome. So in, in the, the premise of the, the, the whole book is the fact that you decided that you wanted to get out of your business from a, from a role and responsibility perspective. And so like maybe, you know, kind of given a little bit of the premise of the book and then we'll kind of be diving into a little bit of the, the different parts of the details. But um, I mean, how fast you grew and explain like how you went from like, I love the ownership paradox. So like maybe a couple of the milestones Scott is like, as you got to that point where it was like, okay, I have a decision I have to make. Yeah. So it, you know, timing and, and everybody in business knows this timing is very important in business. We hit a real sweet spot. We opened in 07, you know, rode that, that ride. I mean, that sorry, 97 rode that ride into 2000 everything kind of fell apart and then rode that next ride after nine 11 and sold in 07. So the timing was a big part of that. And, and our industry, we hit it again. We hit a nice timing on it. We were a PEO, professional employer organization. And uh, even today, they're not really that well known. But back then, they weren't known at all. So when we were into the market, as far as ease of entry into the market, you know, there was no real competition. I mean, yeah, there were some competitors, but we were able to really grow quickly, mainly off of just organic growth. We never acquired anyone. So, you know, it was, it was a real timing situation. And then it was also just the market opportunity at the time as far as, you know, competitors. So then as you were, you know, because I think about the, the building blocks that got you to where you ended up saying, I'm, I want to actually look at this business differently, like by getting out of that, you know, starting that first transition part. You know, right. you know, you were working your ass off and you've grown even still significantly. And I just think like, it's, like what it what was it your mind you call it the mirror the mirror yeah the mirror moment mirror moment i basically uh had a massive panic anxiety attack in a wendy's fast food parking lot and passed out <laughs> for several minutes i call it my mirror moment because i was so pasty white and sweaty and, and thick looking in the mirror and then when i thought about what had happened it, it made me reflect on what was going on in my life and i mean i was 32 years old and, you know, my body was telling me, knock this off. I mean, you are, you are burning both ends of the candle. You are not eating well. You're not sleeping well. You're having anxiety, panic attacks. You know, it's the typical 90 hour a week BS. You know, I just thought, well, if I just do more of it, I'll get better. But it wasn't working. It was getting worse. And uh, that, was the, that was the main moment where I said, enough of this. 
I'm going to hire a salesperson. I don't need to be the sales guy because, you know, I don't trust anybody, which is typical as well. And then <laughs> a couple months later, I hired another salesperson, learned how to be a sales manager, which I really loved, but I did it. And that's kind of the, the real linchpin of when we went from growing at a nice clip because of me to growing at an exponential clip because now I was coaching others to do what I've been doing by myself. So which I find is interesting is you look at like kind of the journey of most entrepreneurs, which is a lot of the people that are on this show. And it like, so you start hiring the right people. You kind of had that, you know, the e-myth entrepreneur seizure and you're, you're hiring the people and you're growing, but then you get to a point and I don't know where in the, the, the year and the spectrum of the business where you were still, you were doing 50 million, but then wasn't it your wife that came in? There was another triggering event that got your head out of the, out of the operations into actually asking yourself different questions which I, I don't know if that kind of ties into your positioning, but kind of explain how that, you know, how, what I described, Scott, is like, it's like you go from like two dimensional to three dimensional when you yeah, have. That's exactly right. Well, it's a great, that's a great analogy. Uh, down the basement, it was April. My wife came downstairs. She was like, I need to talk to you. Like most husbands, I ignored her and kept typing away. <laughs> uh, she said, no, I really need to talk to you. I said, okay, what's, well, you know, what? I mean, like I say, I, I thought maybe the, the neighbor's hitting on her. The kids are having problems at school. <laughs> what do we need to talk about? She takes my head, Ryan, and tilts it up. We're living in Michigan. Tilts my head up to the transom window in the basement so I can see the snow coming down. She says, it's April. It's snowing. I'm fed up with this. I need to move somewhere sunny. This is ridiculous. And so that's what really started the, the journey of Karen and I, my business partner, Karen and I, we were 50-50 transitioning out of the business because I said, look, I'll, I'll move. I'm good with that, but I'm not going to move and get on a plane and fly back here. Because that's, that's, that's miserable on top of ugly. You know, I mean, that's just terrible. And so we spent a year setting up a transition plan, we call it, you know, a very uh, unique, creative name. And the concept was that Karen and I would transition out of our roles in the business over the next year so that I didn't have to get on a plane and fly back every week to run the business. We would, we would literally, literally put systems and people and processes in place and a structure in place that can run without us 100%. So what I find that, you know, like, and I'm curious on how you can help articulate this two dimensional versus three dimensional versus what you did. Right. Cause I like, well, the way I say it is like, it's almost like the owner looks up for the first time. And like, it could be like an out of the blue offer. It could be some triggering event personally, professionally or something. And, you know, cause most, I, I find it crazy how most people say, well, I'm never going to exit. And it's just like, why that people have to think about that when they realize how much that impacts the value of the business and what you do day to day. Like I got this speech scout where it's like, you know, start with the end in mind, but it sounds too cliche to people where they just ignore it, but they in explain you know, how immediately you started looking at the world completely different. I mean, and what was, in, and how all the KPIs and all the things you started tracking just totally shifted. Yeah. Well, you know, desperation is a great motivator, right? I mean, so in that way, in the early years, why I was selling like a crazy man and totally nuts was I was desperate <laughs> to start getting paid. I mean, I went without a paycheck. And then, and then desperation was a great motivator when the wife was not happy where we were living and we needed to get out of there. And so, so you start to think, like you said, at a whole, in a whole different level. So I already knew I was too much in the weeds. I still owned a job at this time. And I knew we could transition out of, the, out of our roles. The key was getting Karen to agree and getting my executive team to agree to want to help us accomplish that. So again, I talk about this in the book. If you're, if you're not developing what I like to call intrapreneurs, so people mm -hmm. who are internal to your business, but they have more of an owner mindset, 
I honestly don't think what we did is possible. So I start with the, most of my people that asked about this. I start with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're not willing to create and coach, you really coach your people like a business coach to become entrepreneurial and thinking. I, I don't believe you might be able to get to the 40 hour work month, but you're not going to get to the total remote business runs itself, you know, one day a year. Time. Well, and let's peel that out, out, out like back if you want, if you're willing to, because I like out of all the clients that I have right now, or even the people that I'm talking to through my presentations or whatever it is there, you have this owners or owners or guy, gal, doesn't matter where their, their charisma, their passion, their like, you know, technical perspective or whatever it is that helped build that company. And I, I've got a range between, you know, 5 million and 50 million where the owner is still either the head PR person, head culture master and, or something. And then there's this massive gap where there's a, there might be technical people that are on their executive team, but there's a huge gap as far as these entrepreneurs who are capable of taking that, that, that personality baton and then like, and the finance perspective. And it's just a really, really hard thing to find. Oh, no, I agree. And I, and I tell everybody this, and I talk to us, I'm not saying this is easy. It wasn't easy. I bring that up many times in the book. I'm just saying it is possible. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. once you get, and you know, I talk a lot about mindset, but once you get past the mindset that you can't, my dad used to always say, can't never did anything. So <laughs> Once you get past that, well, I can't, because I would say, you're right. If you say you can't, you're right. But yep. you can also say I can. So the mindset, that's why I said the, the main key issue to get this thing rolling was to get Karen on board and to get my executive team on board. But this is a better way to run a business. This is better for you. You're going to have more opportunities. And for Karen and I, we need to get the heck out of these people's sandbox and let them do what we hired them to do. We don't need to be babysitting them or seagull managing, managing them. We need to let them do what we hired them to do. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's a, you know, and you address this in your book and I'm curious um, on how you want to expand on it or explain it. The, you know, the challenges that I see so many people It's like, okay, great. Well, I'm making 200 grand and we don't, there's, you know, when you break it all down after taxes, after this and that, there's not enough money. Right. And, or there's not enough, there, there's this whole, like, it, they're not thinking long-term on value creation either. So understanding like cash flow, how do I pay for this? And then how does that, how do I actually see the, the, the light or return? Right. So Karen and I, we, one of the things we had to agree on, that was what had the beginning point of this was we were going to both take a sizable pay cut. Uh, and when I say pay, I mean, total pay distributions, mm-hmm. perks, everything, total compensation. We took about a 60% cut for a year. We agreed to it. Now, again, that's spread out over a year. It's not, you know, all in a lump sum uh, to put back into the business, which was systems, people, we bought a building, software. I mean, so, and, and we were very strategic about this in the, in the transition plan where the allocation was going and for what? We had a budget and everything was great. And as I talk about in the book, everything was rocking and rolling. This was May of 2001. And then everybody knows what happened in September of 2001. Yep. And as I said in the book, it was a brick wall. I mean, we literally dropped 40% top line in three months. And so Karen and I basically, yes, we still kept putting the money into this transition plan, but we went to make nothing basically, which, you know, gotta do what you gotta do. And then the transition plan, instead of taking about 12 months, took about 18 months. But I tell everybody, if 9-11 hadn't happened, I honestly think we would have pulled it off in under 12 months because we had a very strong plan, target. And again, you have to think this way. I don't, I don't know any other way to say it. If you're not, you're not wired this way, you know, they need to bring in somebody like yourself to help them. Cause a lot of entrepreneurs are great at, you know, shiny penny and idea and all that stuff. But when it gets into, okay, let's actually build a system and a structure 
they'd rather just go kill themselves. I mean, that's the last thing they want to even talk about. <laughs> well, well, I totally agree, Scott. But then also, you know, with all the people that you've exposed, been exposed to, what part does ego play into it? Yeah, so that, that's back. We're back to that again, right? That's the reason I had 18 closing appointments in one week. I had to sell to everybody. I, I would not trust anybody to, to go mess up a proposal or go piss off a client or piss off a prospect. So ego is a huge part of it. But I, I think at the root of, of a high ego, a lot of times is a lack of trust of your people. Mm -hmm. that, I see that more than anything, Ryan, in organizations of all sizes. And when you really ask that question enough times of owners and or executive teams, you like I love that book, Speed of Trust. I mean, there's some great exercises in there that really kind of uncover these things inside these teams. Nothing we did. Uh, so, so my other saying I like is, you know, you can't build the real team without the first team. Meaning, you can't build the real team without the trust. Right. So they need to know you trust them. You believe in them. It doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But there's a mutual trust to accomplish the goal that you've set out to achieve. Now, right. if you're wired the kind of way I won't get into certain people, but if you're wired the kind of way where it's my way, the highway, you know, my, you know, what doesn't stink. And I've got an ego bigger than whatever you are going to have a tough time with this. And honestly, that's part of why I wasn't thinking this way in the beginning. I still had that ego. I mean, I did, I wanted to be ordered in Crane's business journal. I wanted to be up speaking at all the events. I wanted to be, you know, but once I moved to this form of thinking, uh, my, my ego in a way, it was kind of funny. My ego became about helping my people succeed. And I know that sounds real, you know, cliche, like you said, but you can have an ego about having a great team too. It right. doesn't have to be about you. You know, right. I mean, my ego became going to EO events, bragging about the fact that my team was running the company better than I ever would have. Right. Well, and what I think is so interesting, Scott, is like, I think that there's the ego and then there's the, the, the it's that new lens. It's that three-dimensional lens of, I have to get out of this business, right? Like when you have that as a goal, you naturally go through the, 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 you know, the reiterations of that person didn't work or like, I find a lot of people are like, Oh, well that person's fine, but they're not fine. If you wanted to get out of the business, they're fine. If you're doing a fourth of their job, you know what I mean? Correct. 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 Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, I talk about the decision matrix, always things in the book that lead you how to figure this out. But I mean, you know, this was not perfection. I mean, we changed out people many times and quite honestly, our biggest issue was during this transition plan after nine 11, like we took off again. I think we hit a hundred or well over a hundred million in 2003, 2004. And I mean, the problem was we were hiring people to run a business at 60, 50, 60 million. And by the time they got up to speed or were, you know, at a level of being promoted, we'd already outgrown them. Yeah. Okay. No and that people would say, well, that's a, yeah, that's not a bad problem. It's a great problem. Well, it is. And it isn't right. Because you, I'm sure you've seen tons of businesses that outgrow their cash. And I mean, that, you know, you got to be, <laughs> yeah. you, you got to really be, you know, say, you know I, I like the saying as well, sales for vanity, profit is for sanity, but cash is always king. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if, if you're, if your people aren't up to the task, good luck with that. So that, that's a real challenge in the transition out of the business. So, I, you know, I've got, no, I agree with you. And, you know, as you look at this next level management and that are like the people, that, the entrepreneurs that you're talking about, you know, what are interesting things that you've seen of like how, pe how people have been comped, right? So someone doesn't walk in and go, give me 30% equity, right? Because that's what people, you know, or there's, they're asking for so much cash or as a W2 that they can't, you can't afford them. Is there ways 
like what are creative things that you've done for comp? And then even before you answer that, Scott, I love, you know, at the back of the book, there's a, here's some context behind this. You said that, you know, it's, a, what was it? Ownership, uh, wealth and I can't remember what exact ownership, wealth and company value. Cause I keep, I, I explain that to, you know, as I can, I can talk and close doors with these owners and some of the listeners, but then how do they get their managers on board and to care about like company value and owner's wealth without having to give away the farm as the people are aware of this. And so there's this whole, you know, dynamic that I see a lot of people deal with of how do I tell them this? How do I comp them? How do I get them to care about company value? I mean, there's just kind of the whole, there's a, there's a big complicated situation there. Well, and I agree. And that comes up obviously a lot, almost every time I speak, somebody brings this up. So first of all, our rule of thumb is, and I, I coach my business, my coaching clients on this. I believe, and we believed in this, we had a very type A, you know, tiger type driven organization. We, we would pay every position. This is not just sales. This is every position. 80% of the market wage. So whatever the market, and we were an HR company, so we knew what it was work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 80% of market wage, but we would pay 100% of the bonus, whatever bonus they were making. So if you came to me and you were making 50 grand a year, I'd offer you 40. But if you could make, you know, whatever, 10 grand a year in bonus, I'd offer you that you can make 20. Uh, mm -hmm. In addition to, really, there never was a cap, but you were pretty much going to be guaranteed to make 20 in bonus on top of it. So you were performance driven. You were driven towards metrics or KPIs, whatever you want to call them, to, to hit your goals and numbers for the company as a whole, not just your own pocketbook or your own job description. Mm -hmm. So once we got our metrics in place, this is very easy. A lot of people say, well, did you have open book management? No, no, but we had open metric management. Now, again, our company was very comp. So when we sold, we were in 42 states. And we had, you know, was it 23 entities spread over these states that made up the whole company. So this was not an easy, you know, QuickBooks type operation here. Yep. Um, so the metrics were what drove everybody to achieve. So when you talk about how do you get people to, to buy in, we got them to buy in because they were sharing in the profits that the company was realizing due to their efforts. It wasn't like, oh, okay, Christmas is coming around. Let's come up with a number of what we're going to give everybody. Uh, it was very transparent. They do this on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. We also did a lot of spiffs and bonuses on a quarterly basis because I think another mistake a lot of owners and businesses make is they, they only do that annual bonus, which is really hard to keep people motivated when they know they're only going to get it once a year. So we would have quarterly, you know, like check-ins. How are we doing towards goal? And we would take a portion of those that annual number and distribute it as a, as a bonus or, or a, a compensation structure within the company. Can you explain some of the metrics? Cause you had some really cool ones that were in there. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of organizations that are in the lower mid market privately held companies struggle with data and, and yeah. KPIs. And again, they're not forced to do it. Right. But I think again, because your ultimate goal, you ended up driving these down and I, I think they were pretty, pretty robust. And like, what, what were some of the ones that you were constantly uh, managing? Yeah. So again, and in the book, I talk about, the, you know, get five metrics that measure 95% of your business. Now, again, this is doable. It takes time. This is something that, again, when I work with people, this isn't something you figure out in a week. I mean, you, you have to come back and look at this and tweak it. I call it like in the book, I say it's like a perfect recipe. You're going to have to change some of the different elements. So my number one metric by far, and I believe every company has one number one metric that drives more. There's other ones that are important, but this is the driver. Gross margin per worksite employee per year. Okay. So 
when I say worksite employee in the PEO world, if your company had 50 employees, Ryan, I would count that as 50 worksite employees in that formula. So let's say my gross margin after flow through was $20,000 a year and you had 50 employees. If you follow where I'm going here, it'd be, well, it'd be a little higher than that. It'd be more like, let's say my gross margin per employee, my gross margin with you is $50,000 and you had 50 employees. Yep. $1,000 per worksite employee per year Yep, would be that metric. Now, by the way, that metric, when I first calculated it and put it in place, here's the sad story. It was $721. <laughs> the, sad, the sad part was, Ryan, the cost per worksite employee was $748. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to make that up in, in volume. Okay. Yep. The good news is once I restructured the whole sales compensation structure and they started getting paid off this metric, not just off headcount or payroll number. When we sold the company, we were at 1471 per worksite employee. Wow. I was shooting for 1500 and we were a little bit shy. But that's the power of not just having some numbers that you look at, you know, or they're on a spreadsheet somewhere that nobody ever pays attention to, but actually driving your business with the metrics. Well, and when I find and it just, I, I love it because, you know, it all comes down to that change in mindset because it's like you needed to find cash to replace you. It was a Karen, you and Karen. Yep. Karen was my business partner. Yep. And so then it's like, okay, well you need to find the cash, which then had you searching for ways to do that, which led you to these these KPIs. And then it kind of explained that the weed killers too, or the weed whackers, or I can't remember what you said. Oh yeah. Weed eating. Yeah. Weed eating. <laughs> That's, um, but cause I think there's just all these, like, as you're trying to find and do, it takes these hard things to do for your ultimate goal. Right. I mean, like it just, it constantly helps you because you know what the ultimate goal is, but maybe explain how the KPIs, but then also the weed eaters, like how that helped you find more money. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this became very apparent. So in the book, the, whole, the book basically revolves around my basic concept, which is my focus filter, which is enjoy life, make money, do deals in that, in that order. Okay. So since 2004, so for 15 years now, my filter in business is enjoy life, make money, do deals. Okay. That's it. So I go through each one. If I can, and this is binary. I can't, it's not like a score one to 10 or regular. <laughs> right. It's either yes or no thumbs up, thumbs down. So when I was going through at this point, okay, my focus filter at this time was do deals, make money, enjoy life. Cause I'm a recovering deal junkie. That's why I do angel investing. Okay. So I was doing deals that weren't making me money. Okay. Like I said, in my scenario right there. And that's why it totally shifted the way I looked at the business, I said, all right, from now on, if we don't make money on a client, a prospect, we are not bringing them on. We are, I don't care who they are. I don't care whose friend they are. I don't care what, you know, what media outlet they're on. Everybody talks about them. I'm not bringing them on as a client if we don't make money. So we did what I called the weed eating process. So we, we took all of our clients and we ranked them by sales, gross sales. We then ranked them by gross margin. And then we ranked them by PETA, not, not the rat, pain in the ass. <laughs> and when you rank them and you see, we got probably at the time at 150 clients, I would guess something like that. We did this, that bottom 5%, Ryan, the bottom, the real bottom feeders, I call them in the book. Yep. Everybody in the company was in alignment on those, on those bottom feeders. Those are the people, Ryan, where I tell, you know, we could have given the, the service for free. We could have sent them their, their, their checks in gold and May and sent them to Maui every year. And he still would have complained about it. <laughs> yeah. Now here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. And as I said, this is the takeaway of this, of this weed eating. 
not only did we improve our company morale because the people who were getting beat up from these people on the phone were not having to deal with them anymore. If they were, we were making huge margins. But uh, lo and behold, guess who the bottom feeder sent us as referrals? Other bottom feeders. Yeah, more bottom feeders. Yeah. The, the, the golden clients, I call them. Guess who they hang out with? Golden clients. Yeah. So we dramatically improved our morale, our referral rate, our margin off of just this weed eating process. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, earth shattering. And I mean, quite honestly, this came about for me finally listening to my ops, you know, I'm a sales guy. So, you know, ops and sales, they always get along, right? So, <laughs> you know, I actually sat down and listened to some of my ops people. And that's where this whole idea of ranking our clients and, and getting rid of the, it's like a top grading exercise for clients. You know, when you think about the weed eaters versus the KPIs and, you know, rehiring to yourself, like, you know, in the order of operations, guys are dealing with this, like what, what was like some of the bigger bottlenecks that once you did them, it like created the biggest leverage? I mean, like, is there an order of operation that you do these in? I mean, like, what are the different ways? Because I mean, like, I think about the KPIs you're just talking about versus then also like what, what was like the order that these things happened in where the, because you changed this one thing, the ripple effect of all the decision-making of your ops person who was then bringing that to you. You know what I mean? Had you already done some of the other stuff before that whole situation presented itself? Yeah. Well, I, I started out with the KPIs, the metrics, because I was just tired of having to look at page after page of financial statements. And I, I'm a finance entrepreneurship major. So I actually, you know, I somewhat enjoy looking at financial statements. I'm like most entrepreneurs. But I, it, was just, it was just daunting, right? And I was like, this is ridiculous. We need to get some metrics around this. But in the book, I talk about, we were chatting about this earlier, you know, the first thing you need to do is, is create an organizational chart for your business. And the organizational chart needs to be by department and position, not by person. Um, I see this over and over again, right? You know, and again, it's email. It's, it's Michael Gerber. It's, you know, hire people to run your systems, not your business. So if you don't have an org chart, with department and position and job description tied to it. I don't even know how you would even operate a business to begin with. I mean, you're right. just leaving everything. So once you have the org chart, then you create the decision matrix, which is in the book, which is what key decisions are being made at the company level, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, and they would be tied to who's in charge of those on the org chart. And once you have that done behind the decision matrix are all of your SOPs, standard operating procedures or systems, et cetera which those tie directly to your KPIs and your compensation. So there's a waterfall effect beginning with the org chart all the way down to how are we measuring success, how are we rewarding success, and how are we handling failure or non-performance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's amazing how once you free that up, like what happens, actually, it's kind of just magical when you line everything up like that. It's, how, how, as you, as you did that, how did your day-to-day -day activities change? And, you know, as you, like, you explained your decision-making matrix that, like, you just all of a sudden were less and less involved in these decisions. So where did you start focus, you know, shifting your focus as more time got, got freed up? Yeah, well, as, I, as I say in the book, it's kind of funny, right? In the beginning, I was doing it, uh, you know, the early years, the dark ages. In the middle, I was coaching others to do it. And in the end, I was getting the hell out of their way and letting them do it. And so that's really it. So once we set up the exec team and I moved to Las Vegas and the company's running itself, I was focusing on what came to be, I think, one of our bigger business engines, which is called the pod model or the point of distribution model. It's, it's, it quacks and walks like a duck, but it's not a duck in that it's not a franchise, but it's like a franchise model without the complexity of a franchise. So 
uh, I was really working on full time finding these partners, these business partners to open up a pod. And so we could offer our services through their current business model. So that's what I spent most of my time on when I first moved to Las Vegas, which was O2. So when you were doing that, Scott, like, I think this is where it's, it's difficult to quantify for the owners that like getting the hell out of all of this stuff will give you freedom to think about these kind of things. And like when you're looking at that, were you looking at that in in light of value creation as far as enterprise value and like eventually like, you know, cause you had the revenue target of a hundred million, but then like, how, like, how are you looking at like the, these different flashier, not flashy objects, but you know, different strategies. Yeah. How, how are you tying that to business valuation and then potential some exit? I mean, what was, what was some of the exercises you went through? No, that's a great question. So what I realized, and this, this had happened before I moved, but I, but I wasn't ready to tackle it because I was still too much in the business. And that's why we had to about. So we were, we were operating in about nine states when I moved. And, and what was becoming very apparent to me is to get this thing. By the way, Karen and I always were going to sell the company. This was not, and this was known. This was not a secret. Uh, we didn't have an exact date. We had set in our mind 10 years and it ended up being 10 years or three months. Um, but, you know, that, that was more probably coincidence than was it actually 10 years. It was more about the guiding principle. But when I moved and I, I started realizing the only way I'm going to get this thing to have real value beyond just a small business value is if we get a bigger footprint across the country. The other thing in our industry we started to see was some real squeezing of margins without getting into the complexity. There were some real margin squeezes going on in certain states that we were already in. And I knew we need to have revenue streams coming from other markets. Plus, other markets were just growing faster. I mean, we, we were in Michigan. It wasn't exactly a, a booming metropolis. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, for example, went into what I call Hotlanta. You know, we went to Atlanta back then. I mean, I think, I think we did more sales in six months in Atlanta than the rest of the company system-wide. Holy um, cow. Yeah, just because of the market, just because how hot it was. So that's what really drove me was, again, back to the end in mind was there's going to be an exit. I want to get this thing as big, as quickly as possible with the structure in place that the buyers know they're buying a well-oiled ATM. They don't have to buy something and come in and fix them. And what the pod did, which is interesting because I've helped other business models, I've helped other businesses put the pod model in place. Uh, this helped us really refine and, and structure our SOPs and systems at a whole nother level. I mean, as you can imagine, um, mm-hmm. versus just, oh, here's, here's HQ and we got, you know, we're, we're overseeing these nine states. Now, when you start saying you've got six pods spread across the country with different ownership structures and they're marketing to whole new client bases that we'd ever gone after. Oh, and by the way, we now have clients in 40 states. That makes you up your game incredibly in your SOPs and, and systems. Yeah, that's it's just amazing. And yeah, so because you, I'm curious. Like you said that you were thinking of the exit in mind from day one. Like, how did that become a thought in your head? Like, you know, so from what I'm understanding, because like in your book, I don't know if I really clearly understood that. Where it wasn't that example in Michigan or that story in Michigan. It was predetermined that you were going to do this. Like, how did that? Where did that thought come from? Well, it's so Karen. So interesting enough. So I grew up in a family business. My father and my grandfather were in business. Uh, so was my my mom's dad also had a business. And then Karen's parents were in business. Uh, her dad owned a car dealership and her mom owned a forest. So we had been, was, by the way, we had an anti-nepotism policy in our company as well because of those experiences. I mean, <laughs> not against family business, but, you know, it wasn't exactly, you know. Different challenges. <laughs> yeah, there are some challenges 
but Karen and I, when we sat down and said, look, you know, I, I'm willing to give this a go, meaning I'm willing to go all in, jump off the cliff, no parachute, but I don't want to be, I don't want to do this forever, you know? And, and so that was kind of where we started. We agreed yeah. on, um, just as importantly as my wife agreed to let me be and, and support an entrepreneur was that Karen didn't want to create some evergreen business, neither did I. Um, yeah. We didn't want a legacy. We didn't want to hand it down to our kids. That was never in the conversation. And again, this is, you know, you've heard this from, I'm sure, tons of your guests. It's about being intentional, right? I mean, right, totally. that's one of the first questions I ask a business owner. Well, what's your exit? And like you said, nobody will, hey, hate to break it to you. We all exit, right? <laughs> it's, it's just like this crazy delusion that right. people tell themselves. Right. And I'm like, and like, here's the thing that I just find absolutely perplexing, Scott, is that like, why, do you th- why are you proud of that? Right. Like, it makes like you, your business doesn't run as well right? <laughs> and you're just kind of screwing yourself financially. <laughs> well, again, another, I, I'm doing these sayings because I love sayings. They keep my mind and as I get older, it's easier to have sayings. But you know, another thing that my father used to say is, you know, people don't lie on their deathbed saying they wish they would have worked more. Right. So, you know, and, and as a, as a kid growing up as the oldest of four boys in my dad early years, you know, he was gone before I woke up and he was home after I went to bed. Uh, and he had to be at that point of his entrepreneurial life, yep. just like I did. Uh, I sure the heck didn't want to be doing that the rest of my life. And, and when I had my mirror moment situation, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm heading down that same path and this is dumb. So, Which I find interesting, Scott, because you were doing that even though you originally planned it that you were going to exit. So I just, and it took you another kick in the butt to, to actually, you know, really kick it into gear. Well, and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was six, it was six years. So from the day we started to the day we totally transitioned out was six years. So this didn't happen overnight. Now we didn't decide to transition out until the fourth year, yep. but you know, it's not like people go, Oh, this, you know, da, da. I said, well, wait a minute, time out here. I mean, how long have you been in business? I've been in business. I'm talking about a, a, somebody who's read the book. Yep. How long have you been in business? I've been in business 10 years. Okay. How much stuff are you still touching on a daily basis as, as a doer in the business? And, and typically an owner will tell me, oh, maybe 10%. And then I say, okay, are you fine with me talking to a few of your employees? Well, yeah, because you're going to work with them anyway. I say, great. What do you think the employees are telling? Oh, yeah. Oh, we talked to them about everything. Right. Oh, well, you see the stack over here on the side of the desk? Uh, Mike here, the owner, he has to sign off on all this before I can send it out. Okay. That's still in the business. I mean, yep. you're touching any part of those departments on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. You're in the business to that degree. So you may only be there 10% of the time, but you're making everybody else's life miserable because they got to run it all through you. Well, I find it, you know, one of the psychological things that I find that is tied to that, Scott, is that like there's like this uh, endorphin fix, I think, that happens for like with affirmation of being needed on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Difficult to get rid of that and sacrifice money at the same time. It's just like, it's like all things weigh against someone not, like getting out from underneath it. <laughs> yeah. I, and again, I, and I, I, cause I've, I've coached and talked to a lot of different types of entrepreneurs and I, you know, I, I think it, it's not a one, one people we hired thought and making sure we're all aligned on the same page. Meaning we didn't have a bunch of, you know, trust fall group hug type moments in our business. I mean, we were hard drivers, boiler room type attitude, not the, the legal part, but the, Mm-hmm. <laughs> the training type tiger attitude, type A attitude. And 
I think the I think the concept and the mindsets won't work anywhere, but you've got to fit them into your culture. I mean, that's everybody knows that they don't necessarily do it. Yep. Um, I'm not saying break your culture, keep your culture, but but honestly, some of the clients I see culture is the problem they can't transition out of their business. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like, there's not the KPIs that set them up for clear expectations. You know what I mean? Where like the expectations are unwritten based on approval, like a, you know, personal approval or something like that versus like clear defined, like this works, this doesn't. And then we can have fun and talk outside of the, what did did you, one of your things was friendly, but not friends or something. Right, friendly, not friends. Right. Yep. Well, you know, when you were looking at your exit, as you're growing and you're focusing on the pods and stuff like that, you know, I also think one of the things when you're thinking about that, you're always kind of looking at yourself in the marketplace and looking at your company like an asset, which obviously you were doing. What were, you know, some non-negotiables or drivers for you of like, you know, when and how to exit? Was it a valuation or was it like a right buyer or was it like a specific buyer in the in the industry? Like what was... Well, how did you, you know, I'm assuming because you're a process guy, you had some sort of criteria that you were marching towards? Yeah. So the whole thing started, it was a uh, summer of 06. I'd flown back, you know, I go back, as I say in the book, I would I'd go back to the office once a year for a half day, uh, meet the 10 to 15 people who've been hired since I've been out there, uh, go over some things on our top five priorities for the year, uh, and then have lunch with my CPA, Karen and I would and then fly home. And we're at lunch, getting ready to go to the airport. And uh, his name's Steve. Steve says, hey, you know, valuations are working good in your industry. And I've got, I've got a couple of parties interested in, in doing some recap. Work with PEOs. Would you be interested in the recap? And kind of went through it. And I said, well, let Karen and I think about it. So like a week moves by and I called Karen up and said, you know what? I'm, I'm interested in exiting, but I don't want to do a recap. I want to like totally, you know, rip, rip the cord and you just, you just sell. Yep. So once she agreed to that, we went to, went to Steve and he started working the deal together. And, and, um, you know, as far as negotiable, I, I, you know, as you know, it's, it's not the price, it's the terms. Everybody wants all cash at close. Um, that, that I don't, I mean, I've heard of it rarely. I mean, in big companies, maybe, but not at our level. Um, but, but the beauty was, Ryan, because Karen and I had not had really anything to do with the business, per se, for almost four years. Uh, we held a lot more of the chips. So we actually got 50% cash at close. The balance paid out over two years. No performance guarantees. No holdbacks, no no clawbacks, no uh, no earnouts. That was the deal. Did yeah. you guys, so, guys you know, hire? Like, I talked to at the time. That was kind of unheard of. But honestly, I think the only reason we were able to get that kind of a deal is we didn't have anything to do with the business. Right. All right. Well, so what was you know briefly describe like your maybe your team and like the process? Did you hire an investment banker? Like, did you ring on you know door doors yourself, or what was the kind of the, the overall process from? Yeah, so our, our CPA firm actually has a, a, I mean, I'll just go and tell you who they are. It's UHY at the time, uh, and I'm still a good friends with partner there. Uh, they have an M&A division uh, in, in the firm, and so they actually handled the whole deal. We did not have a broker. Um, they, they, they created the back room. They took us to market. Um, they were, you know, the, between them and our attorney, worked the deal out, and that's, that's how the deal happened. So uh, fee for service, no percentage, uh, being negotiated. <laughs> stock sale versus an asset purchase was was beautiful from a tax standpoint so can you uh let, let's uh, let's touch on that just briefly because you know there are a lot of people think that that's not possible and you know this due diligence library you know you're a, you're a data guy so a lot of people don't realize how important it is to have all this right. stuff prepped and ready to go yeah can you is there a correlation excuse me uh from the preparatory work and how clean you guys were to the stock sale 
Absolutely. So again, remember, this was complicated from an entity setup, right? 23 entities, mainly LLCs, but some sub S's with the mothership in Michigan. And then these other entities spread all over for, for mainly uh, tax and insurance reasons, mainly because those state by state, we couldn't get yep, yep. insurance had to be set up in certain states or reciprocity states and all that. I mean, anyway, it's, it's a complicated mess, but um, so they, they spent almost eight months preparing the back room, getting everything in order. Now they were already our CPA firm, so that made it easy, easier, but it was complex from getting all those, those details together. So they did not take, take us to market until eight months. Uh, so it was February or March of 07. Uh, and, and because of, to your point, because of the, um, the cleanliness of everything and how organized and how simple they made a complex thing we originally started with 16 interested parties hmm. which i was i thought wow if we got 10 it'd be cool because i thought we were pretty good but um we got 16 so it wasn't like we were you know scrambling to find somebody interested um that's awesome. And like, I just, you know, there's, there's a, you know, part of our process is doing the due diligence library and getting some of the advisors yep. involved to own their part of the due diligence library. And, you know, like you said, owners hate this stuff, you know, and it's like, cause first of all, it could be potentially there's investments in the, the services, but then like, I'm like, if you eliminate all of the questions or answer them ahead of time. I mean, asset versus stock sale is like huge percentage difference oh. in taxes and like it's wow. so worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it was an, and, 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 you know, there's lots of reasons why that happened, which are, are quite honestly above my head. I mean, the CPA can go through an, an attorney and tell you all those that are, you probably know because of your background, but when we, when we went to, uh, you know, look at how the deal was going to be structured, that was one of our things that we really wanted, obviously. Uh, was to get a stock sale. And so that was part of the negotiation piece um, when we went to market. So it was always going to be that um, from day one. So so then, you know, the last little question on that part is the the difference of the buyers and the, like, you know, just was there like a range in terms and conditions and types of buyers and why they wanted to buy you? And then how did you guys filter through those? Yeah. So again, uh, as you know, typically, not always, but typically a strategic buyer is going to be a little you know, better deal. I mean, typically, not always. Um, so most of the people that were looking to buy us were strategic. Um, there really weren't any financial. So the, the company that ended up buying us was a, a large staffing firm that was in 18 states and they wanted to add a PEO arm division uh, to their staffing. So uh, they immediately had a footprint now in all these other states that they weren't in. The, the other addition is we had an insurance brokerage that we'd also was sold along with the PEO. It was a separate entity doing about 12 million a year. That was a huge benefit for them because because they now had access to a brokerage, a set up you know a health health and life brokerage that they could access with their um, their temp business. I mean, what a dream! Like you would just literally prepackage a cash flow machine that didn't. Yep. You guys, <laughs> it's just like yeah. And, and quite honestly, <laughs> the only reason we didn't go with there were two other offers. One after one, we did get an all cash offer. We did have an all cash offer. From a competing PEO, uh, I'll keep it nameless, but it was obviously a lot less money uh, than the than the term term deal, so we didn't go with that. We also were kind of not, you know. I always say to these people, like, oh, I don't want my clients to go to this company. You know, okay, well, we really didn't have that, but that the company is looking to buy us. Did not have the best reputation, and we, we felt nope. that that was matters nope. to our employees or to our, our clients necessarily. So, as you know, as you have successfully done your exit, you know how. 
how have you, even along that process, Scott, you had mentioned that you're a deal junkie. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, it's, it's this engineering of your perfect life. You know, like, how do you, like, how have you done it? What are things that you've used that have been beneficial of like, how to get the fix of business and control and creativity without the risk? I mean, like, how have you re-engineered your life over this, over the last decade or so as you've been doing this? Yeah, great question. So I, and I use this analogy now when I do my talk, you know, Scarface, right? When, uh, when Tony Montana is sitting there at the end with that pile of coke on the desk. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that literally is business to me. Like, I just want to bury my face in that pile of coke. <laughs> you know, I love business. And, and I love business. And I, I, my first angel deal I did in 2000, uh, as part of a way to, to handle my focus problem, which most entrepreneurs have, and, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't go astray <laughs> my company. I would, I, would, I would feed my addiction to business with angel investing. So at least... If I screwed something up, I only lost 50 to 100 grand. I didn't lose, you know, a multi-million dollar company. <laughs> um, and so I've done, I've now done 37 angel deals uh, oh, since wow. 2000. I'm in, I'm in six of them right now. And that's kind of how I re-engineer myself. Now, of course, because I'm a systems guy, I have a three-step process that anybody that wants to bring me on as an investor has to go through. But quite honestly, Ryan, I'm back to my original filter. It's an enjoy life, make money, do deals. So I, I don't work with, I don't invest in, I don't sit on anybody's board that I don't get along with or have rapport with or enjoy being. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care what the money is. Make money's number two. I don't care how good the money is. If I'm not going to enjoy getting on the phone or going to an investor meeting or, or having to work through difficult problems with people, I don't give a darn how much money it is. So that's number one. Number two is make money. So what's the deal look like? What's the money? What's the return? What's the exit? All right. Now, yep. one and two are yes. Now I go to three, do the deal. Now do yep. deal. Now let's sit down and structure the deal. Now, I've never done a deal the way the person asking me to invest has wanted it. It's always been negotiated, but I'm yep. also not a hard line, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's got to make sense. Yeah. No prisoner type negotiator. But I, if you can't, if I'm not going to enjoy it, and I'm not going to make money, I'm not going to do it. And that's just a simple filter for me. I have these, these templates that people go through and fill them out. I use Gust, Gust.com, which I'm sure you're familiar with, kind of to get them going down the down the path. And then, uh, but again, you know, it's funny here, Ryan, is we're back to coachable and take action. And you know this, like if a hundred people came to me and said, hey, I'd like you to invest in my deal. And I said, okay, first go to Gust.com, G-U-S-T.com, fill out your one pager, send me the link so I can look at it. Out of a hundred people, how many people typically do you think you can ever do that? Oh my gosh, um, 3%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really, yeah. I usually get, I usually get like eight. Like, if I just ran the numbers, about eight. I then take them through my next step, which is my business opportunity scoring system. It's called the Boss Worksheet. I self fill this out, self evaluate yourself, send it back to me. Now you're down to like maybe two people, maybe, maybe, right? And now we're like, okay, the, the final step, which is what I call scrub the numbers. My second brother is a CPA, so he he runs the ratios for me. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Go for it. Don't go for it. Now I'm down to that one or two out of a hundred. That we ever even get to the deal phase. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's funny, Scott, because like, you know, our, our services are hard work. Like people yeah. are signing up for pain. And it's like, yeah. you know, yeah, the analogy that I have been using, it's like, okay, so all of the information ever is available about eating well, sleeping well, exercise, and right. you, can, you have to do it. And right. then, so the amount of people that do it themselves has got to be what, 1%? And then oh, you yeah. And then you go down to like the people that need the trainers that are paying for pain and then actually do it. I mean, I see people in the gym 
for five years. And I'm like, you're still not in shape. Right. Pay for right. the pay for the trainer. <laughs> right. And I mean, and my, my conversation, and again, it's gotten a lot better. So I don't, I don't get many of those anymore. When I first started in this and I was learning my way, you know, I, I got a lot of looky loose. I mean, typically now the people that come to me are, are referred by an existing investment right. or right. somebody in my network. And I really don't get those that much anymore. I used to get these people as hilarious. I'm going to send you my deck or I'm going to send you my plan. I'm like, I'm not going to look at it. Well, don't you want me to send it to you? I'm not going to look at you. If you feel good sending it to me, like the guy at the chamber meeting, handing out 25 business cards, I guess you feel good about it. You don't get any business out of it. Go to Gust and fill out this information. So coachable and take action. If you're not coachable enough to go fill out a form that I want you to fill out for me to stroke a $100,000 check, do you really think we're going to get along so well when we hit some tough times in your business? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, you know, it's common sense, but I don't know. No, it's a, it is, it's, it, it's, well, and I think it all depends on like, what is the ultimate goal? And I think if you do, like you said, if you reverse back into people's ultimate goal, you can really align or at least understand their intentions or lack, you know, whether they do it or they don't or everything. I mean, it's just all kind of depends on what their, what their ultimate goal is. Right. And again, you know, this too, I, I tell them, I don't know if this is familiar with you, but I tell you, look, I've never ever stroked a check in less than three months. And I've never stroked a check after six months. So my Colin Powell rule, my 40-70 rule, my sweet spot is three to six months. So guess what? Which this used to happen a lot. If you need the money next week, I'm not your guy. If you need the money a year from now, I'm not your guy. Yep. Interesting. I like that. Knowing that and knowing your system is, is again, we're back to mindset, system, and process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm a pretty lazy guy. That's why I use systems. I mean, why? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I agree. I agree. So, you know, if you were to, to uh, leave our listeners, Scott, with like, okay, you know, someone's listening to this stuff, which means they're already trying to figure out how to look up, right? I mean, they're trying to like avoid that mirror moment or even the Michigan uh, or yeah. the, the snow moment for you. Like, what are some things that you would leave people with that would be the highest, highest leverage? Well, of course, and I'll just be self-serving here, you know, read the book or, uh, you know, get it on Audible. Uh, it's an easy, it's an easy read. It's like 80 pages. And then there's 32 pages of exercises. So, I mean, you know, yep, yep. people tell me they've read it and done the exercise. Well, a little tip here, people that have given me feedback is read the book first, then go back and do the exercises. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good idea. Yeah. Start doing the exercises, you get sidetracked. Well, so anytime I meet somebody, the first time is, especially a small entrepreneur, beginning entrepreneur, I'm like, do you have that right-hand person? I call it in the book. Do you have that 80% of you person in yep. your business right now? Right? So, Yep. You have not groomed or found or put in place that person that's 80% of you. They're not going to be 100, but they're 80%. You got to start with that. Yep. Right. Secondly, then, is have you identified and started to coach and create a team of four to six entrepreneurs who can ultimately act as your leadership team once you decide to start the process of transitioning out of your business? So I'm in this with like six different companies right now. Several of them are still figuring out this 80%er, and several of them are building their executive team. Yep. So you've got your 80 percenter, you've got your executive team. Now you can begin using what most of the book is about, which is using decision matrix and some of these other tools, yeah, yeah. KPIs to start transitioning yourself out of those roles, out of those sandboxes. You don't need to be in it anymore. That, those are really the, the three steps that I I mean, I could not agree more. I mean, it's like the the number one thing is finding someone that you trust that is the 80%. I mean, like it's almost every single one of my clients' problems. <laughs> 
you know, like you do have someone that you can actually relinquish your control to and be okay with it. And like, then they start to like make justifications to the different people around them. And it's right. like, but you're, but you're still not addressing this problem. <laughs> right. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and then, and so in, in my, in my role originally, my 80% guy was my sales director because I had to pull myself out of the sales role. Uh, and I went and I recommend this to everybody. Go take that person. Don't run ads. You're not going to find that person running ads. Go, go find that person and take them just like a headhunter. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then the person that became the 80% of me was Seth, who ended up running the company for us. He took over my role as CEO and Karen's as president. Um, and he was definitely well over 80% of Karen and myself and the way he ran the business, probably That's awesome. 85 to 87% of us. You know, he's not, if, you, if this person has to be perfect and make every single decision the way Ryan would make it, you're never going to make this happen. Yep. Yep. I would agree. I would agree with that. So if uh, people want more information on your book, your, the ways to get in touch with you, what's, what's your, the best way to reach you? Yeah. Happy to, anybody wants to email me at scott at growthconnect.com or if you just go to growthconnect.com, you can buy the book there. Uh, also, I love, you know, connecting with people on LinkedIn. So, you know, if you just look up on LinkedIn, Scott Fritz, I'll come up with number one because I have the most contacts. Uh, happy to make connections for you. I believe your network is your net worth. I'm always happy to help people build their net worth. So, you know, reach out and connect. Scott, it has been a blast, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, sir. Look forward. Had a great time. Look forward to hearing from you again. Who's excited to go find their replacement and start working themselves out of their business? Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Scott. He is an absolute model of what we should all be doing. He makes it sound easy, but I think that if you just start taking baby steps, you can start thinking about transition. If you got to reframe it as just trying to work yourself out of the business to give you time to breathe and think about this, that's the first step. So if you have any questions, reach out to me because me and my team, our goal is we've got the whole process on how to do this. So if you want to have a conversation about, okay, what are my options? How do I do this? It's absolutely a must that you start thinking this way. If there's one big takeaway, it is reframe how you're thinking about your business. Look at it as if you're trying to work yourself out. Go from two-dimensional to three-dimensional and start looking at your business and having a different relationship with it because it will absolutely give you more happiness. It'll give you more options and financially, you're going to be rewarded for it. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you have any time, rate me on iTunes, share the episode and tune in to next week.